As mentioned earlier, we're in week six of our series. Second's the last week. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. You're all aware of that. Good, 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 good. Um, and we're working our way through the first half of the book of Acts that, that, that's really telling the story, uh, setting the stage for the second half of the book of Acts, which was Paul, uh, the missionary to the Gentiles. Um, but Paul could not have happened without the first half of the book of Acts. And these four or five guys that I've been looking at this last couple weeks here, um, Again, celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And, and, I, and I think recognizing through this series just how inseparable those two are. The gift of the Holy Spirit and, and our church, right? Without the Holy Spirit, our church doesn't exist. We're just a gathering of people spending time together, right? We're not a holy community. But when you put the Holy Spirit into that mix, we become something radically unique and radically special. Um, we become God's tool in the world, right? God's hands and feet in the world, um, and Luke is putting all these pieces together, right, that are going to lead to Paul the Christian killer becoming Paul the missionary to the Gentiles, right? Like, how did he go from one to the other? I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a big, that's, a, that's a big step for somebody to take. And, and, and so Luke is telling the story of how Paul did that, right? All these things that led up to Paul and, and, and concludes with, with, with Paul. Um, and again, Luke's putting all these pieces together in just this amazing Stranger Than Fiction series of events involving just a bunch of guys that can really only be understood if we kind of bunch them all together, right? So last week, um, I introduced you to the guy named Saul, um, who becomes Paul. He doesn't become his Hebrew name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. So when he's with the Greeks, he went by the name Paul. That's, uh, he didn't convert from one name to the other, okay? Um, and, and, and Stephen. Um, so we introduce you to Paul by way of two other men. One of them, first guy is Stephen here, whose teaching and, and martyrdom um, paved the way not only for Saul's conversion, an amazing story in and of itself, but also for a second guy that we've been looking at. The second guy is Philip. Right? So between Stephen and Philip, Stephen, um, his teaching on the temple and the law basically said that you Jewish officials no longer control the temple and the law. Right? By way of the Holy Spirit, the temple and the law follows Jesus now. And it, and it follows followers of Jesus. You, you, you no longer control this thing. Right? And so that teaching really revolutionized the, the way they thought about religion. Um, and then his death uh, that Paul oversaw in that picture um, led to a whole bunch of other deaths. And, 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 and the believers, they scattered, right? You run for your lives. You're, you're going to get killed. This crazy guy Paul is out on the loose. Um, and then Philip um, goes north to the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans, but with Jewish background. So they're kind of Jewish. Kind of, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch, um, again, probably born a Jew, but not of Hebrew blood. So that, that was a big stretch for the, the, the Hebrew people, right? This guy isn't of the pure blood of Abraham. And, ah. um, now, here's, here's what I want you to notice. Um, these are the first two Greeks. If you look back in Acts, Acts chapter 6, there's seven guys, right? They, the, the church had a problem. The, the preachers were getting too involved with some things that they needed to be involved with, with preaching and prayer. Um, and so they found out that the Greek widows weren't being treated fairly. And so they found seven guys with, with Greek backgrounds. And, and I don't know if you noticed this, but these are the first two mentioned, right? Stephen and Philip were the first two of those seven. And, and, and I think Luke includes this little tidbit of information because um, they're called, those seven men, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, they were called very specifically to, and, and the way it words it is, wait on tables, right, to do the ministry to the people, 
and to, 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 to address the needs of the people, right? And we've got this idea in our world that, well, okay, there's that group of people, and then there's the pastors. Ooh, right? There's you all, and then there's we all. And I think Luke is just like, don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. It'll be a horrible road to go down. It'll, it'll not do you any, any good whatsoever. So Luke, he includes this information because these guys were assigned to wait on tables, and yet what do we find them doing, both of them? Sharing the good news of Jesus, right? So, so if you're a deacon or if you're you know, a, school, a Sunday school teacher, if you're any other things in this church, look, God has not relieved you of the honor of sharing the good name of his son, right? So just, I just kind of want to point that out. I, I, I sometimes get like, well, I'm not called to share. I'm called. To, no, you are. We all are. All right, I don't want to bang up on you on this too long. Um, but again, this is beautifully demonstrated by both Stephen and Philip, right? Assigned to wait tables, but winning souls on the side. So clearly when it comes to Holy Spirit, right, he's not a respecter of persons, like only pastors can share the good news. So anyway, side note there. After sharing the conversion story of Paul, Saul, um, the eventual missionary to the Gentiles in chapter 9, Luke quickly jumps in chapter 10 to the conversion of the first Gentile to become a Christian, right? So we got the missionary to the Gentiles is saved, and now we got the first Gentile. Um, again, this is, you can see it in the picture right here, Cornelius uh, there on the right. Um, Peter is pouring water on him, baptizing him there. Uh, we're going to get to that. Um, but but here's, the, here's the important part. Um, Peter's baptizing Cornelius only because Stephen was martyred which forced all of the, a lot of the apostles, the Bible says a lot of the apostles stayed in town, but, but a lot of the believers, they scattered. And it was only because of Stephen that Philip went in one direction and Peter goes in another. So this is all kind of, they're all building on what the person before them did, one connected, connected kind of story. Um, but before Cornelius can find salvation, we need to understand that Luke's actually telling two conversion stories right now. It's really the story of the conversion of Cornelius, but it's also the story of the conversion of Peter. And I'm going to say that, that kind of carefully. It, it's, I, I kind of like, I came up with this title, um, uh, saving, saving Captain Cornelius, but also Saving Private Peter. Um, I've looked at a couple things, and, and Cornelius is either a captain or a sergeant. Some of you who are in the military can check that out and figure this out. He's in charge of 100 guys. Co cohort? I, I, I don't know. I'm not military. But, but anyway, I'm calling him Captain Cornelius. Um, some of you might have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't, let me just give you a very, very quick recap of the movie. Uh, a company of men, about eight, nine, ten guys, I don't know if, you, if it's called a company, I'm so ignorant about military things, um, they are given, they're, they're given a mission. Um, they're to go find a guy named Private Ryan whose four or five other brothers had already been killed in, in the war. Uh, World War II, the movie takes place. Um, and the army had decided this poor mother can't lose all of her sons. I mean, that would, that would just be horrible. So the army steps in and says, this poor mother, we got to get back one of her sons, right? So this platoon is sent out to save, go find Private Ryan. He's in the, the, the European theater somewhere. they got to go find him, and they got to get him out, even if it costs them their lives. So they had to wrestle with two questions that Peter had to wrestle with in order to reach Cornelius, and we've got to wrestle with if we're going to reach the city of Richland. Two questions that we've got to work through. First question, who was he that they must die in order to save? 
Right? I mean, that, that company of men is wondering, who's, who's this Private Ryan that we all got to die like our mothers don't count? Right? Who's this Private Ryan guy that suddenly the army has taken and elevated him so, so much? And, and again, for Peter, who is this Roman centurion Gentile? Right? Same question. And for us, city of Richmond, who, who are they that they're so valuable that we've got to sacrifice our hard-earned money, our time, our efforts? to go and save. And, and the question everybody kind of fights around and, and deals with is, um, you know, in that day, he's, he's not one of us. And what we wrestle with is they're not like us. They have weird habits that we don't agree with. And, uh, and it's like, no, God's like, you know, stop it. You gotta stop it. And the second question, similar, who are they to stand in his way? Right? Who were they to stand in the army's way? The army had made a decision. God had made a decision. Who's Peter? To stand in the way of God. And God has told us that he wants to save all people. And who are we to stand in the way of God? Again, the question takes on an incredible significance and importance and urgency when we consider what the apostle John, who was a contemporary of Peter, um, he writes a letter. He wrote three letters at the end of your New Testament. He, he writes a gospel, but he's also got three letters that he writes. He's also got the book of Revelation. The guy's a writer, right, all over the place. Um, and in his first letter that he writes, he, he says this to the Christians at, at, at the city of Ephesus. Now, again, you all understand that Paul traveled to the city of Ephesus, um, started that church there, but John ends up pastoring it, right? A little background there. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have from him and declare it to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So fact number one, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So fact number two, when we walk in darkness, we have no fellowship with him. Period. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So the third fact, it's only by walking in his light that we have truthful fellowship with one another, free from pride and, and judgmentalism and all the isms that divide us up. It's only in the light of Jesus that we can even agree on anything this past year. Anything. <laughs> Because there are a lot of things that we did not agree with, right? I was telling somebody to come in. I mean, every decision I'm making lately, I'm going to tick off half the crowd. <laughs> there's no winning because there's so many sides right now. Um, so Christ is the glue. Like, he's the common denominator. And it's only by the light of God that we're able to walk with one another. Without the light of Christ, right, we end up like in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, right, in, in Greytown where everybody lives all alone on their own block because they can't stand being around other people that aren't exactly like them. So everybody has their own block. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible situation. Uh, let me see here. And the corollary is we can't walk. If we can't and won't walk with one another, it's only because we don't have fellowship with God. That one stings a little bit because that's a finger pointer, right? So again, the story of Cornelius' conversion could not happen without the story of Peter's conversion, right? The fellowship that led to Cornelius' saving knowledge could never have happened without the light of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to jump in in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, our story this morning. At Caesarea on the coast, uh, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So we know three things about him, very important facts about him. Number one, the biggest fact that we need to know is he's a Gentile. 
right? And you understand that to the Jewish people, the Gentiles, like you, you prayed each morning that God didn't birth you as a Gentile and a bunch of other things because they just... Um, you didn't enter a Gentile's home. You just did not enter a Gentile. You didn't converse with a Gentile. You didn't enter their home, and they didn't enter your home. You had nothing to do with Gentiles because they were unclean. That's not that necessarily that they were sinful, but that God hadn't blessed them. They weren't part of the covenant people, and they were just, well, they were fodder for God's annihilation, really. That, that, that's their viewpoint, um, so, Gentiles, way down on the list. You couldn't get any lower. So, number one, strike one. Cornelius is a Gentile outside the covenant, right? Number two, he's a Roman, right? And the Romans were a people who had are overruling, um, ruling over the Jewish people, right? Throughout their history, somebody's always ruling over them, and, and the Greeks have been defeated. And now in 63, I think, B.C., the Romans come in, take over, and become their ruler. So he's Gentile, and he's a part of the government that is oppressing them, right? So strike two. Third strike. Third strike is that he is a centurion, right? So he's not only a part of the government that's <laughs> being mean to them, he's like the tip of the spear. <laughs> he's the military, right? If somebody's going to do something mean in the crowd, it's going to be one of the soldiers, Right? If you look back in the history between when the Romans got there and the time of Jesus, there were a couple big massacres, thousands of people massacred right there in Jerusalem by these soldiers. So a Gentile Roman soldier, three strikes, we hate you. <laughs> we hate you and God hates you too. <laughs> right there it is. But also Luke has three other facts he wants us to know about. He's a devout God-fearer. He's generous and he's faithful. Right, he prays all the time. Now, God fear in the New Testament times, it's a technical term for Gentiles um, who had attached themselves to the Jewish religion, and they loved the ethical law, but they really had nothing to do with the civil or ceremonial law. Right? So they weren't circumcised. They, they loved to go to synagogue. They loved the ethical standards of the, the Jewish people um, and all that stuff, but they're not circumcised, and they don't, they don't subscribe to the law. They don't put, place themselves under the law, the law of Moses. Um, but again, they, they, just, they just love the religion. Um, again, the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, probably a Jew by birth, but not Hebrew blood. Um, that was the big deal. So one day while praying, um, Peter has a, uh, uh, Cornelius has a vision of an angel speaking to him. And the angel says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send people to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Um, and we can already see right now the Holy Spirit's at work in Peter's life, right? Um, he's staying with a tanner. And a little bit of Jewish law, you, if you touch dead bodies, doesn't matter what dead body it is, it's a person, animal, whatever, you're ceremonially unclean. You're not sinful, but you're ceremonially unclean so you can't participate in fellowship. You can't be in fellowship with the people. You have to live outside the city. So lo and behold, guess where the tanner lives? He lives down by the seashore. He lives outside of the city. He's perpetually unclean. He has no fellowship. So Peter goes and stays with him. And, 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 and you just kind of, kind of, you look at it and you think, this is God's prevenient grace, right? This is God slowly drawing Peter in. Most scholars think that this guy was more than likely a Christian, 
a Jew who had become a Christian. Um, and, and again, Peter, just by hanging out with him for a few days, or even deciding to hang out with him for a few days, shows that the Holy Spirit's doing something in Peter's life, right? Peter's starting to look at the taboos and the, the intolerances of his, his, his faith, of his people, and recognizing God's doing something new and different. It's, yeah, something's going on here. Um, then, of course, being used to receiving and giving orders, Cornelius immediately acts, verse 7 and 8. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa to bring Peter back. Now, you all know about Joppa, right? This is the same port that when God called Jonah to go to another Gentile nation, the Assyrians, what does Jonah do? He sails in the opposite direction, ends up getting swallowed by a whale. Now, my guess is Peter's thinking, Joppa, Jonah, oh, a centurion, a Gentile's calling. Am I going to do the same thing? I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine him not thinking through all this stuff. And he's just like, what? And again, this just highlights, right? Both stories, Nineveh and now Cornelius, um, just how entrenched the prejudice was of the Jewish people that had to be overcome, right? If the Gentiles were ever going to be invited to the table of fellowship as, on equal terms with the Jewish people. I mean, these were some tall barriers that had to be knocked down. Um, again, we've made this point several times before. This, this aspect, this, this facet of Judaism could very well have remained a facet and a sect of Judaism, for only Jewish people. They have a lot of different groupings, right? They're not very uniform. Um, and this could very well easily have just become another Jewish thing. God's like, no, this is not going to happen again. Not going to happen again. My spirit's going to make sure of that. Um, so again, in chapter 8, we see God overcoming the Jewish-Samaritan animosity, that division right, break, right? And then, and then now in, in chapter 10, right, how is God going to deal with this much more challenging Jewish-Gentile division? Way more hatred and animosity involved with this one. So the big question in chapter 10 is how is God going to deal with Peter's incredibly deep-seated intolerances and prejudices? And how will we do it as we read this story. And again, it's as much Peter's conversion, and I'm going to change the, the terminology now. What we're really talking about with Peter is a word we use in the, in the Christian church called sanctification, right? I remember in summer camp, every summer we'd go down to the altar to be saved again. And, and my guess is somebody explained it, be, and my guess is that I wasn't paying attention um, because what I thought is every summer I have to go down and be resaved. Right? And, and really what was going on, now that I look back on it, every summer God was pointing some things out to me and he was sanctifying me. I was saved. He wasn't going to leave or forsake me. But every summer that crazy preacher at summer camp would bring up something in my life where I'm thinking, oh, boy, he nailed me on that one. It's not like I had to be resaved at that point, but I needed to be cleaned up a little bit. God needed to point at some things in my life that before never bothered me. But then when I found Christ, like these things started bothering me and they didn't stop. Like I had to address them in order to have peace in my life. So really sanctification of, of Peter is, is what we're looking at um, this morning. Um, and, and again, really the sanctification of the church. If, if this passage is being read in the context of the birth of the church, we, the church... 
need constant sanctification because we all, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have these little groups that we don't like and we, right, you know, we mention them and then we're real careful if we're around a Christian and we'll say it really delicately, but there are groups, there are opinion groups that we're like, mm, mm. So, sanctification. Meanwhile, 32 miles south in Joppa, about noon the following day, they were on their journey and approaching the city, and Peter went up to the roof to pray. So, they're in Caesarea. Peter's down here. Cornelius has a vision, sends his men 32 miles south to Joppa, and Joppa, the very next day, he's on his rooftop and he's praying. It's like the Holy Spirit's like going to go, whoa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray, and he, began, he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Verses 11, 13, 11, 12, 13, he saw an angel, uh, heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, a lot of you might be aware of this, but what's going on here is God is saying, look, I've told you in the past there are certain foods that are unclean, right? I'm telling you different now. I, I'm not sure if he's telling them different, but I want you to see something, something really, really important right here. Um, and of course, being a good Jewish boy, Peter refuses. I've never eaten unclean foods in my, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. And so twice more, the sheet gets lowered down and twice more, the voice says, kill and eat. And twice more, Peter says, never. I know the rules. I know I'm not supposed to, right? Peter's perplexed. He doesn't know what's going on. He's like, well, this is the craziest thing. Verses 19 and 20, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, stop being perplexed. No, he didn't say that. Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, here's a, here's a kicker. That word hesitate, we read it as don't, um, you know, hurry along. Don't stop for a cup of coffee. Don't stop for tea, right? You know, get on it, but that's, that is not what's going on here at all. The, the Greek word, I'm not going to go into it in too deeply, but, but what, um, what is being said here is don't, uh, I just wrote down, don't have any misgivings or make, make no distinction, right? And the, I, I kind of paraphrased. What he could have said is speak to them civilly and don't insult them by bringing up the fact that they're Gentile and you're Jewish. That would really capture the whole thought there. Peter, don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. You Jewish people have been jerks to everybody. Don't be a jerk. This is super important. Be really nice to this guy. Don't hesitate. Don't, 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 don't do that. So thankfully, Peter seems to have made the connection, right, between clean and unclean foods and clean and unclean persons, right? And we see this in what happens very thing that next happens. Um, Peter goes downstairs. He meets them at the door. That's very important. He meets them at the door. Remember, a good Jew, Gentile, they don't enter each other's houses. No. So they're at the door. This is absolutely crucial here. Um, where the men were sent by Cornelius explained why they're there. They're at the door. And then Peter does the unthinkable, the absolutely unthinkable. Chapter 10, verse 23, then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. Now, again, I want you to, to, to pretend that you're, a, you're Jewish or you're Gentile. It doesn't even matter. And you just got a hold of Luke's new book, Acts, and you're reading through it. And at this point, you just stop and you throw it on the ground. You're, you've got to be kidding me. 
He invited them. This stopped the story cold, right? Everything else was like, ugh, but now to invite them into his house as guests. Most people threw their books down, threw them into the fire and walked out of the room right at this point. This was, this was mind-boggling, right? So the Holy Spirit really is doing a work in the life of Peter, right? And we're calling it sanctifying Peter. Prevenient grace, saving grace, that's gone before, but now Peter needs some sanctifying grace, right? Again, those things in our lives that before Christ didn't bother us at all. But now that we found Christ, like, now that bugs us. Why does that bug us? Well, because it's mean. Well, before we knew Christ, we didn't, it didn't bother us to be mean. But now that we've got the love of Christ and there's, there's, there's a rub inside of our soul and we just we can't be mean anymore. Um, this is the Holy Spirit tackling one thing at a time, sometimes in bunches, right? You all know that. But, but he tackles just a little bit at a time, and he sanctifies that aspect of your life and makes you better prepared for the mission, kind of cleans you up a little bit, makes you more like Christ. Right, this is where we, all those thought patterns and all those learned reactions that we develop while living in the world, right? That's going to take some time, right? The, 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 it's instantaneous that we're forgiven and that we're given a new life. But that process of living into that new life and breaking down all those very learned habits and behaviors, that's a process. Now, I've heard people, that's instantaneous too, and that, that's, that's a miracle. Because 99% of the people I meet, that next step of cleaning up their lives after they accepted Christ, that's a long, that's a battle, that's a struggle, right? We're, we're God's spirit, just one thing at a time, and it hurts, it hurts because he's taken something that we built into our lives for protection. He's like, no, you don't need that anymore. I'm going to rip it out of you, and it's, it's going to hurt. But I'm going to replace it with my spirit, and you're going to have peace. Passage continues with the next proof that Peter, he's beginning to connect the dots. Now, again, understand, those of you who are sanctified, wholly sanctified, fully sanctified, does not mean that your behavior has been perfected. It means that your heart has been perfected. You want to serve and love God more than anything else in the world. And in this passage, we understand something about even being wholly sanctified. Our hearts are perfected, but our behaviors aren't, right? We've got, we got to understand that. But what we see in Peter's life is we see a man leaning into that sanctification process because when we're not in that sanctification process and somebody points something out for me, what is my first reaction? I did not. You're crazy, right? All this defensiveness. What we see in Peter, he's going to get called a little while down the road, a couple chapters later, right? He's going to start treating Gentiles as lower than him. Paul's going to call him on it. And what's Peter going to do? He's not going to make any excuses. He's just going to say, you're right. I confess. I'm sorry. That's what sanctified people do. They're not perfect, but their hearts their hearts are perfect. So this, this is this process, right? Again, Peter's beginning to connect the dots. Verses 23, 24. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the followers. That's going to become a very important piece of information in just a few minutes. Um, from Joppa along the way, went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and his close friends. So, so Cornelius, along with really the Ethiopian eunuch, they were what Luke called in chapter 10 of his gospel persons of peace, right? You go into a city, you go into a village, and you say, peace be with you. And somebody, if somebody returns the peace, lean into that, right? They're, they're, they're connecting with you. And more than likely, they have a whole bunch of people that they want to see find peace also. So connect with that person. So this is what's going on here, right? Peter has found a person of peace, Cornelius. He's brought his whole family. They're all there. 
people ready to believe and the persons of peace are going to make sure that none of their family and friends are left behind, right? That's a person of peace. And the proof that Peter might be connecting the dots, verses 25 through 27, is Peter entered the house. Again, think back to entering houses. He's not entered the house yet. He's standing at the door. Luke's making a big deal about this. Cornelius met him at the door, fell to his feet in reverence. Peter made him stand up. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside. So all this conversation took place at the door. The Jew doesn't go into a Gentile house. The Gentiles don't come into a Jewish house. I mean, they're just... Luke's screaming something at us right here. He's, he's like, no, Peter's taking another step in that sanctification process. He's, he's hit another thing. I'm going to have to make a choice now. I'm going to have to make another choice. I'm going to have to make another choice. I'm going to have to make a good choice now instead of the choices I used to make. So he goes inside. So not only stays with a tanner, not only allows Gentile to enter and stay where he's staying at the tanner's house, but now he's entering and he's going to stay for a bit in a Gentile house. And then Peter is brutally honest with him. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. I'm just being honest with you guys. My people hate your people, right? But God has shown me that that's wrong, that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And so again, another indicator that Peter's being transformed from the inside out. He's being sanctified right? A verbal apology, explanation and an apology, no excuses. Love that. So Peter asked why he was sent for. Cornelius explains his vision and how he sent to find Peter. Verse 33, so I sent for you immediately and it was really good for you to come. And now that we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us, preach it, brother, right? There it is. 34 and 35, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Paul preaches, again, the basic message that all the apostles preach and preachers continue to preach to this very day. Uh, we, we teach the history and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, what he did and what he taught. We teach a little theology, right, that through Christ God is saving the world. And we teach a little gospel. Obviously, we always end with the gospel. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we all have forgiveness. We all have eternity, salvation, and, and again, it, it's, it was probably compacted. He probably spoke a bit longer, um, but it had to have been a really good sermon because here's what happened. Verse 44, 45, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who were all kind of standing in the background going, what's going on? Is this for real? Who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And then in verses 46 and 47, voice, Peter voices that first question. First of our two questions, right, that the company of men and saving private Ryan have to answer and the question that we've got to answer. It says, then Peter asked, then he said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And in another translation, it's, it's worded kind of as a, more of a question. Um, in other words, the Holy Spirit has obviously made the call. Regardless of our prejudices and our intolerances and our divisions and all of our junk, the Gentiles are worthy. The Gentiles are worthy. Remember the first question that we looked at, right? Who were they that we must sacrifice in order to save, right? Who was Private Ryan that we got to die for? Who's this Roman centurion, right, that I got to risk my life for and risk my standing in my Jewish community? What makes him so important that I've got to risk all of that? And again, we, right? What, what, who, who are they out there that we got to risk everything that we've built here? They're just going to come in and make a mess. 
Private Ryan is worthy. Cornelius the Gentile is worthy. The lost and the broken of Richland are worthy. Why? Because God says they're worthy. And who are we? (laughs) So Peter does what no Christian had ever dreamed of doing before. And it was a very short little history there. (laughs) Very, very short. Uh, 48, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptizing Gentiles. (laughs) Right? The whole idea was let's, let's improve the Jewishness of us. Now we're letting in Gentiles, right? Just wow. See, but that's not the whole story because that's not the whole story of human nature, right? God's word is brutally honest about our human nature. And as we read God's word, we got to be honest too. And it's kind of a mirror thing, looking in the mirror. So the saints back in Jerusalem, they got word about what Peter had done and they weren't happy. Verse 1, chapter 11, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. you're, You're led to believe like they're excited about it, but they're not, they're not. Um, And the text gives no indication as to why Peter does what he does next, but next we find him going up to Jerusalem. And again, we don't know if they called him to report. What have you done? We want you to report in Jerusalem. Or he just decided, you know, a visit to the old city would do him some good. Either way, uh, verse 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate. That was their big deal. That was the big sin. That was, that was, and, right? How dare you, Peter, right? We're ashamed. You should be ashamed. We're ashamed even being near you. You should just be so ashamed of yourself. And Peter's like, I had nothing to do with this. I'm just going to tell you what happened. Stop getting mad at me. This is what happened. And And he starts. He explains the whole thing from the very beginning. Now, this is super, super interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, these writers are writing on papyrus, right? They don't have stacks of paper back there. Very, very valuable And so it's very, very strange that that Luke would choose in his book of Acts to repeat a huge, long section, basically the sermon and and what happened, almost verbatim. The writer is screaming to his early audience 2,000 years ago, what I'm saying is important. In fact, I'm going to say it twice. I'm going to take up a whole bunch of room in this expensive paper here, and I'm going to say it twice. That's how important what I'm about to tell you, because I know you're going to doubt me. I, I know you are, but you got to remember this. And in fact, it's so important. You got to remember it. it's so important. Not only do you got to remember it, um, but you also, uh, let me see, what's the other thing? You also have to, you have to believe it, right? You have to believe it, which is, is why it's equally interesting that Peter now numbers. Remember earlier in verse, was it, 23, he said, and some of the followers went with him to Joppa or went with him up to Caesarea. In the middle of the retelling, Peter adds an incredibly important detail. Watch this. This is what, because he's testifying. In verse 12, it says, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation, right? Don't draw any distinctions. Don't be a jerk about this. Just go with them. Then he says, these six brothers also went with me. Okay, that's seven. Now understand something. Again, he's, he's testifying. He's telling the believers in Jerusalem something that they're inclined not to believe or to be very, very hesitant about. And so he does this. This is an amazing thing he does. In Egyptian law, um, if there are seven witnesses, right, you're convicted. You don't have a prayer. In Egyptian court of law, if I can get seven witnesses, you're, you're, going, you're going up the river, Right? And they knew Egyptian law because they had been ruled over by the Ptolemies, which were Greek Egyptians, for quite some time. So they understood Egyptian law. And they also understood Roman law because they'd been under them for 
six, seven decades now. And in Roman law, if a document is sealed with seven seals, that means it's an authentic document. You can believe what's in that document, seven seals. Luke is going out of his way to tell the saints in Jerusalem that it happened. It happened exactly as I'm telling you. I had nothing to do with this. I was not pulling anything. I wasn't trying to push anything. This was not me. This was the Holy Spirit. I had nothing to do with this. It's exactly, right? And you can take this to a court of law is really what he's saying. You know how Jewish I am, but I'm telling you exactly what happened. Things have changed and there's no going back. Then Peter voices the second question that we, that we all got to answer. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I said, I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 17, so if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Again, that first question focused on the value or the importance of the people that God is sending us to and calling us to love. But this second question focuses more on us. Right? Who, who are we? Right? Who, who, who is that company of men to stand in the way of the army? Who is Peter to stand in the way of Cornelius finding God if God said he's worthy? And who are we to stand in God's way when he says, those people down there in Richland, they're worthy. Every single one of them, they're worthy. And you need to go find them. You need to go find them. This is the heart behind the sanctification process. More fully recognizing the fact of who God is and who we are. Who they are that we're to reach and who we are that God is so honored that he would ask us to join in his mission, his commission. God loves them. That's who they are. And he's calling us and equipping us to tell them how valuable they are. That, that's who we are. And the saints in Jerusalem seem to have connected the dots too well as much as they could. Close this in verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. But again, saying and acting like it are two radically different things. You know, we read Paul's letters and we realize these churches, man, they were all over. The, they, were, they were a mess. They were just a mess. I mean, it's always messy, this process, but your heavenly father never gives up. You should never give up too. And you should also thank these guys, these old Jewish boys here, because if it hadn't been for them, this would have remained a Jewish thing. And we were Gentiles, by the way. We would have been in a bad place, a really, really, really bad place. So I just want to close with this one question here. What intolerance or what secret hatred does God got to remove in your life for you to be the missionary that he's called you to be? We all have it. Don't pretend I don't got anything. What, what is yours? And I feel like this past year has helped us find somebody to hate. <laughs> I hate saying that, but... Boy, if you haven't found somebody to be mad at, you're not paying attention. <laughs> you're not paying attention. So who is it that you need to not be saved, but you need to be sanctified? You need to have something, some muck cleared out. Bow your heads. Father, we, we thank you for this, this story, this, this thing that happened. And, and it's not just something that happened over 2,000 years ago. It speaks directly into who we are right now as the Church of the Nazarene here in Richland, Washington. It speaks directly into who, who are these people that, that don't know you and just how much you love them, Father. And again, you've given us everything we need. 
Father, if there's any intolerances in our lives, any, any barriers whatsoever, fill us with your spirit in a way that it expels that. It just drives it out. Father, thank you for the work that you are continuing to do, the sanctifying work you're continuing to do in every person's life, hearing my voice today. And Father, I know there are voices hearing me today that they don't know you yet. They haven't even experienced saving grace yet, but you are drawing them in with your, that drawing grace, prevenient grace. So Father, be strong, be powerful, and, and by our prayers and by our hands and feet that we would see people redeemed. Thank you, Father, for everything you're doing, for what you started, what you're doing now, what you will continue to do here in Richland. Thank you so much. Your sons, I pray. Amen.